Thank you very much. Morning then, Wednesday the 21st, I'm reliably informed, of March. And uh, somehow or other we've come round to the theme of fire this morning. The fire of God. Uh, it's it's um, just happened. Uh, that That's where we've started. But actually what we're looking at really is, um, we're looking at Psalm 132. So we'll try and get into what we're looking at this morning, instead of going everywhere else. It's quite incredible for me because I'm um, on Monday nights now. I've started doing um, Christian growth on Monday um, with the group that meets here, and um, the first part was all about commitment. As Graham would say, we bang them with commitment, but there is a place for just reminding people that you know to 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 awaken, if you like, our commitment to God, to awaken it to Him, because we can get so familiar with the familiar uh, and when I was looking at my notes for this morning the whole thing is about reorganizing our priorities uh, and see what our preoccupations should be so really if you boil it down it's about commitment um, and having a look again um, if we're going to in enter into the fullness of God's presence and power it's going to require passion for God and to, to have passion for God we need to ask for the fire because it takes God to love God and we're not going to get on fire if we don't ask for the fire to come. Um, and so I, I was just getting out of the bath and suddenly found myself singing Let the Fire Fall. Um, good old Pentecostal thing. God had also spoken to me about the fact, he kept reminding me, there's two books that Francis Frangipane, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce his name, wrote some 12 or 13 years ago now. One was In the Presence of God and the other was The Power of the pres of His Presence, I think. always used to get them muddled up because they look exactly the same. And he just kept bringing my attention to this book, so I thought better have a little look then, seeing what it's all about. And of course, because Francis Frangipan, and you bought me a word from him the other day, didn't you, off his website, is a, pr a prophetic guy. Um, what we're seeing in if I look at this book, we're seeing it coming out to pass now uh, because the prophecy is usually takes about 10 years uh, to come to pass and um, God is speaking about his presence um, uh, with his people because that's what he's always wanted right from the start and he doesn't, he doesn't veer away from what he actually intended. And the reason why there's such an upheaval, and uh, it's everywhere, the upheaval in the church is quite a hoot, really, if you're standing looking at it from the outside. It's painful for those who are involved in it, getting called out of church where the leadership obviously don't understand. Um, but God will bring them to a place of understanding. And Joyce drew my attention to this uh, uh, yesterday. It's, it's, a ch it's um, here's a church on the way. Um, it's the word for today. Um, for the second of Mar 20th of March yesterday. And it's all about finding the right church. <laughs> I had intended to um, to take a photocopy, because for those that were interested, you still can if you really want it. What should you look for when trying to find a church? The first is Christ-centred worship, the celebration of God for who he is and what he's done for us. A biblically sound church places, places a high priority in, on praising God. The second is quality bi Bible instruction, 
Does the church you are considering believe, honour and teach God's word in such a way that you understand the Bible and see how it applies to your life? Remember, you can't grow beyond what you know. A third characteristic of a good church is fellowship, the sharing of the life of Christ among its members. This goes far beyond Sunday morning attendance or coffee and donuts in the fellowship hall. True fellowship occurs when we are involved in each other's lives, caring, encouraging, correcting, loving and sharing with one another. The church should provide us with a meaningful sense of belonging. Fourth is the church's ministry of outreach. A church that wants to grow cannot be ingrown. There's nothing wrong with being a small church as long as you're not small-minded. The church you identify with should provide you with opportunities to use your gifts and talents, to touch other li others' lives, emphasising the importance of sharing your faith in word and deed. In other words, the church's impact should extend beyond well beyond its walls. When you find a church where these priorities and experiences are regularly offered in an environment that's saturated in grace and charged with faith, you've found the right church. Join it. And don't ask what your church can do for you. Ask what you can do for your church. I thought that was ever so interesting, really, because it's just permeating everywhere. The the change, really, in uh, the whole paradigm of church. Um, as you know, it's been a drum <coughs> that I've been banging for some time, and I sometimes I frighten myself with the zeal that Joyce prayed about it last night, about eleven o'clock. Was it eleven o'clock or earlier? Earlier when she prayed for me yesterday evening front and the life out of me she's shouting and hollering in tongues stabbing her foot in the kitchen there praying for me fire she's shouting fire in the bones fire in the bones that's why I'm all full of fire this morning fire in the bones fire in the bones she's shouting last night radio got some of that then well it kindled it again you know Jeremiah says doesn't he his word was a, as a fire shut up in my bones and I was weary with holding it in sometimes you get weary with holding it in you know um that there are times when we need to behave ourselves in church uh, but when that goes on for 20 or 25 years of just holding it in I think it's time to come to let the corsets out and let the fire come out uh, you know but then <laughs> just undo your stays dear you know I mean God is doing a new thing and as Graham is wont to say he does not bolt it onto the old but what the church does is it looks over the fence and sees the new thing that God is doing, reaches over, looks at it, shapes it a bit, and pins it onto what's already there. So as I've said before, you get this Emmet-like arrangement of bits and pieces, cups and seals, bits running down there, bits stopped up there, you know, um, what do you call them, cul-de-sacs going nowhere, and it ends up like a most cumbersome machine. Uh, and it becomes an organisation and not an organism. Bob Mumford's written a, a very good little book called... Uh, um, it's like... Well, I, don't know what, I can't remember what it's called, but it's it's got Frankenstein's monster coming down the steps of the church. Yeah. And what he's saying is that what has happened is that God gave us a paradigm... And we're like the person who created Frankenstein's monster. Put it all together, it's laying on the table. Then they put the electric shock through it and it gets up off the table. And you can't control the thing. You don't know what it's going to do next. And instead of it serving you, you end up serving it. 
so you go into a church and your first the first words are what can you do for us so you're designated it, it grieves my heart no end to see young christians wanting the milk of the word needing to be at the breast really needing to be at the breast and getting the milk of the word being told well oh you wouldn't have to do for being the treasurer you know they're looking immediately to fill something for you to do to keep this jolly organization going this frankenstein-like monster that's risen up off the table and as you know it just went it just caused mayhem wherever it went um but that's just a personal opinion mine and bob mumford's so that's um, i'm in good company there um but i think that well i know that god is breaking the paradigm he said time for a new wineskin when there's a new wineskin something's got to die to make the skin uh, because the old wineskin will not hold the wine that God's going to pour out I don't think we've seen anything yet um, we think we have because we've been partying for however long but that has got to stop so that the serious work of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry can begin i've got nothing nothing against the renewal movement it's fine but if it's a renewal movement in itself and it doesn't go anywhere it doesn't produce anything there's no lasting change people just keep coming back for another conference and another conference and they never get released into doing what it is they're meant to do um satan's got them up up a cul-de-sac again he's got them going on the roundabout of uh, me, 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 what about me, 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 you know? As I understand it, each church should be a different expression of the body of Christ, not the same expression of the body of Christ. And I think this is why a church on the way has attracted so much criticism about not being a pastoral church. They're not meant to be a pastoral church. They are a resource to the body of Christ. You're not meant to go in there and have a there, there, oh, pat, pat. You go there, get yourself sorted, and go back to where you came from to sort them out. But because there is this mindset of, of a, a consumption in the body of Christ, you know, they're a consuming church, uh, consumer-minded. Rick Joyner wrote about it a long time ago. That that's what we're in danger of, of having. You see these prophetic guys that have written these books 10, 12, 15 years ago, and you start to see what they were speaking about actually coming to pass. It's really quite scary. And you think this is what they warned about. The little book of his um, must have been written 10 or 15 years ago, Rick Joyner now, called Mobilizing the Army of God. And that is so appropriate for right now, it's unbelievable. And he's talking about the things that will have to come. Um, in, in order for the body to, to stop being a consumer church. But other churches you can go in and you just sit there and moulder in your pews, you know. I mean, because there is no life coming from the front. You do need to question whether you need to be in the place where you are as regards. I'm not, I'm not what naming an insurrection here. I'm, I'm saying you do need to question if you are worshipping in the right place. You'll know. Me, 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 me. It's me-centered, man-centered. I go there to get what I want. I go there, never unceasing ministry, always want ministry, never able to grow beyond the ministry. Um, it's, it's like a dependency that the, the church almost um, continues. 
you know come and see the next person and then you get in the prayer line for that and of course that doesn't seem to solve it either so you go to the next conference you get like a conference junkie mentality i think at the first of our ladies conferences i said you know don't become a conference junkie i want people here who are going to take away the word for them and then live it because that's what god will do this is this is your um school and then he would he loves to take you through the experience so a lot of you are experiencing things because having learnt it <coughs> sarah will tell you all about this and experiencing god having learnt it he then thrusts you into a circumstance with a big grin on his face while you're in the microwave with it on full power going round um to prove out that which you learn on paper you've learnt god's faithful you can say it you can recite it now you find it out in the trials and the tests and the heat of the circumstance in which you find yourself placed you know that my remit is to ground people in the word of god teach them to hear teach them to obey and then release them because once you've got the people grounded they're hearing what god is saying they're obeying what he's telling them to do you've got them on the they're on the right track doesn't mean you let them go in terms of bye-bye no more relationship it means that they are then able to be bringing along other people in their train because the whole idea of this is seed sowing so that those seeds in turn will procreate god's creative he wants you to make more like yourself so but you can only take people as far as you've gone so you've got to keep pressing into god to get more because otherwise you're going to run out so you've got to keep going uh it's interesting i don't know must have been how long have you guys been coming here now from crayford about 18 months ago probably two years ago sue rang me up and told me she got this group starting in crayford and out of my mouth came like a machine gun and where are you getting fed and i thought who said that i thought i tried to push the words back in again because i thought that was really out of line because what i was saying to her was you can't take them further than you've gone you've actually got to be pressing 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 into god because you've got to have more food lined up on the conveyor belt and you've got to know what that food is inside out because they're going to ask you questions and you can't just read it out of a book one minute and then think oh, so that'll do for, for next week because they'll ask you questions uh, and uh, she was we passed it over I thought I shouldn't have said that none of my business but within six months you guys started coming down here and I thought that was actually the Lord in hindsight I realized it was him that fired that out because she needed anyone leading a group needs to be going on with God it's part of the commitment to leading a group you're committed then to go into a higher level yourself so as you can bring people along behind you my whole philosophy is to make leaders because actually leaders make leaders that's that's what they do they they teach people in the way that they are going and they in turn become leaders so they're leading other people uh which i've read it somewhere in a book <laughs> right let's have a little look then i don't think i'm going to be able to balance this hold on
to the script, turn if you would to uh, Psalm 132 and we'll see if we can stick in that for a minute. Gone back to my old Bible this morning. Instead of my brand new one, because I've got all my notes, it's like a, it, it's got all the all the bits written in. It's more. Gina's just said that her feet were dangling like a five-year-old. I love the I love the picture that gives me. Okay, so Psalm one three two. Um, Lord, remember David and all his afflictions. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty God of Jacob. Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house, or go up to the comfort of my bed. It comes a priority. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty God of Jacob. He's God inside minded, as Bob Mumford says. Behold, we heard of it in Ephratah, we found it in the fields of the woods. Let us go to his tabernacle, let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and your saints shout for joy. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord has sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony which I shall teach them, their sons shall sit upon your throne forevermore. For the Lord has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place for ever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision, I will satisfy her poor with bread, I will also clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There I will make the horn of David grow, I will prepare a lamp for my anointed, his enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. I felt to um, put the jolly old picture of the lion up there this morning. Um, that is hanging in uh, J uh, Jacob's storehouse, is it? In Jerusalem, is that the name of the place that the seag seagull seagulls run? A huge picture apparently, and um, Tony and Kathy were there visiting with the seagulls, and they... Uh, took a photograph of the picture that was hanging ab ab above it and as you see the Lion of Judah is draped over Jerusalem there with his leg hanging down and uh, nearly squashing the dome of the rock which I thought was really rather nice so it's uh, who's who's doing what there uh, so when we looked at uh, Psalm 131, we looked, uh, I'm just recapping now, at the subject of humility, which we discovered was submitted strength and brokenness before the Lord. And when we pass the threshold of humbling ourselves, then God reorganizes our priorities and thoughts as he draws us into his inner chamber. And in this study, we're primarily going to see what God's priorities are and what our preoccupations should be. 
As I said this morning, the Lord uh, really laid on my heart to bring the bread of the presence in here, um, which represents Jesus, to say that he's in the midst of his people. That's what the bread of the presence was. It it was a um, a little uh, round cake of bread. It's been portrayed in various ways. Sometimes you see a table with um, little spikes in and the, and six little round loaves, like bagels. I suppose bagels are round, aren't they? Like donuts. Uh, at six either side, and they were the bread of the presence. And then there was the candlestick. We're talking about the holy place now, you know, inside under the cover. There was the holy place and then the, the most holy place. And the holy place was lit by the candlestick, and which is tip type of church, shining the light on the bread of life, which is Jesus. And so we brought the bread of the presence in here because God really wanted to reinforce the fact that he is in the, in the presence of his, his presence is in the presence of his people. He's inside and he's outside, if you see what I mean. He is the God who dwells within us to the extent that we will allow um, his indwelling. And I looked up, um, because it's talking about the Ark of the Covenant here, the focus on it here, David's going to bring this jolly Ark back. Um, and it's the only psalm, apparently, where the Ark is mentioned like this. And the Ark was the place of contact between God and his people. And the ark symbolized God's very real presence in the midst of his people. Between the cherubim was where God dwelt. And this word dwelling is very important. It's the Hebrew word shakan, S-H-A-K-A-N. And it literally means dwelling. And where Moses had the tent of meeting, um, the he met there with God and the shakan of God was visibly seen. So I looked up the word and it, in, in, in Hebrew as I say shakan it means lodging, dwelling, abiding, remaining, inhabiting, resting. Do you want me to go slower? It means to lodge, dwell, abide, remain, Inhabit, continue. Interestingly, it comes from a root, which is means a sexual union between a man and a woman. To lay, dwell we've had, inhabit, settle down, and be permanently settled. So that's what God wants to do in our lives. He wants to permanently settle. <laughs> what did that somebody say? It's marriage. It's marriage. <coughs> I like that. God's presence was so tangible, clear and powerful. And that was associated with the Ark of the Covenant. And it was precious to Israel. Or was it? <laughs> I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't. Um, I want to look at uh, Samuel, 1 Samuel 3, 11. And we see in this that the ark was captured. 
and uh, the background to this is that uh, Samuel, the boy Samuel, now is ministering to the Lord before Eli. And as you know, Eli um, had let his sons go and they were not following in his steps. And so there's, here comes uh, passing the baton from uh, Eli to Samuel. And Samuel gets called in the middle of the night. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel, this is verse 11, at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And actually it's God's judgment on Eli now, because in that day I will perform against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I've told him that I will judge his house forever, for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile and he didn't restrain them. Therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Not surprisingly, Samuel does not want to tell Eli this information. Anybody got a word from the Lord this morning that they don't want to part with because, you know, it's not going to be nice for the recipients. Uh so he says, don't hide it from me. What's the thing that the Lord said? And of course, we, we actually see that what, is, what actually happens is that the Ark of the Covenant gets um, kidnapped in, in chapter 4. Um, but the interesting thing is, as I was reading through this, they, first of all, Israel were, they went out to battle against the Philistines. Uh, and they were defeated. This is uh, chapter 4, verse 2 now. Uh, they killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field of the Israelites. And when they come to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated or struck us today before the Philistines? Here we go with presumption. Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us. When it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. Foxhole faith. They turn their back on God. They take no notice. Eli slipped out of being the leader or the judge because judges comes before Samuel, I think. And, and Eli was a judge, really. The prophets in the Old Testament, before they had kings, um, really took the place of a judge or a ruler over the people. But he'd gone sloppy and his sons had followed suit. Uh, and now here we come with gross presumption. We'll, we'll go and get the ark up. We'll bring God up here. And if we put him in the middle here, he might do something for us. Verse 5. When the ark of the covenant, God doesn't leave his ark. The Lord came into the camp. All Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. And the Philistines heard it and they were got the wind up. But nevertheless, um, the ark of the God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Uh, when the man, as you know the story, when the man gets back with the news, uh, Phineas' wife, who's in labour, um, goes into goes into labour spontaneously because of the news she's got. Eli falls over backwards and dies. It's a it's a it's a whole that the judgment just comes whoops straight on the whole lot, um, and she went into labour. She bore her child, but died, um, and she called. The, the child Ichabod which means the glorious departed from Israel 
So he actually bore the name, the glorious departed, which it had. Um, and then in uh, 1 Samuel 6, 1, you see that the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. So they kept it there. But then, of course, they got trouble, didn't they? They got smitten with emeralds, it says in, <laughs> in, the, uh, uh, in the King James. So they think, this is not a good idea, having this box here. It's causing us trouble. Um so then in, cha in um, um, chapter 7, the ark's returned to Kiriath-Jerim, which if, if you've got map in your, in your Bible, it's very close to Jerusalem. Beth Shemesh and Kiriath-Jerim are quite close there. But then it stays there for 20 years. And I looked at that this morning and I thought, it stayed there for 20 years. It's like for 20 years, because Israel had sustained such a blow from God, they didn't go near him. They stayed away. And I think somewhere it says, yes, that's it, verse 3 of chapter 7. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, and put away. See, what had they done in the meantime? They'd found themselves other gods. And the Ashtoreths from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord, and serve him only. He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths, and serve the Lord only. And then he says, gather them at Mizpah, and I'll pray to the Lord for you. So they repent. Um and uh, starts to go a bit better for them. But what was interesting to me was that it stayed there for 20 years. I thought, I wonder if we're like that, you know. Um, something goes wrong, and instead of going back to God and saying, look, I'm, I've got this wrong, um, please put me back on the right track. We go off and drink from another cistern, as it were. You see what I'm saying? It just shook me this morning that it was 20 years. So in this psalm, here we are with David. He is going to go and get this thing back. Um, as a sideline, I wanted to read, because I dip around all sorts of things on a Wednesday morning. At Exodus 33, 7. Page 22, not third. Looking at page 33, silly me. This is Moses now. Exodus 33, 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And it came about that everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting which was outside the camp. Notice everyone who sought the Lord would go out. If we're going to truly seek the Lord, we must go out as Moses did. And those who sought the Lord, we must pitch our tent a good distance from the camp. What camp is this? 
For Moses, as well as for us, it's the camp of familiarity. We'll stay where we're familiar. And so in order to get to the, what the Lord wants, we've got to put ourselves out a bit. Um, as I say, this is this, this is, this is this guy, and he says, um, he knew that men by nature are unconsciously governed by the familiar. If he would expand us to receive the eternal, he must rescue us from the limitations of the temporal. How many of us right now are caught up in circumstances which are temporal, which limit us from seeing the eternal? It's, we're so short-sighted. We cannot see beyond the end of our noses. That's why God plans for eternity. Nothing is in your life right now that he hasn't allowed. If he's allowed it, there's a purpose in it. If there's a problem, there's provision for it. So we can rest in his faithfulness. We really can rest in his faith. It's not a place of sitting back and doing nothing. It's a place of active faith. Because faith without works is dead. And that doesn't mean good deeds. It does mean good deeds, but it can also mean works of faith. By sitting and saying, Father, I'm in this predicament, but my eyes are on you. I know you're going to deliver me. You're going to get glory, and I'm going to grow through this. So often what we do, my dog used to chase his tail. Anybody got a dog? I mean, it's, it's funny to see it really go round and round and round and round till he finally got it. And then when he sat down, he'd look at your whites of the eyes showing, huffing and puffing the end of this tail stuck in the mouth and then with his back feet he'd start jabbing at it to pull it out of his own mouth <laughs> I mean a dafter thing you cannot see and then he'd start all over again usually when he was very excited but don't we chase our own tails and when you're chasing your tail you can't see anything but the end of the tail you're round and round and round and round as I said to the lady on the phone yesterday who's, I said Rick join us was was apparently, um, or maybe still is, a first-class pilot. And when he was learning to pilot planes, he was taught never fly into a never fly into a storm. But when you do, hold your course, because of course storms will come when they're up there. They can't dodge them. They'll suddenly find ah, storm. Don't turn to the left or to the right, because the quickest way through is straight the way through the storm. If you turn to the left or the right, you're going to get caught up in it and you'll go round and round in the storm. So you set your course straight through. Can't see a thing. Driving blind, but I'm going straight through this thing, Father, because your word says that you are going to provide. Your word says you are true to your word and this time I'm sitting down, gritting my teeth and I'm going through it. Because we have to come to that place. We'll come, if you've ever watched someone jumping a horse, and we watch it sometimes over here, da 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 da, da oh, ducks out one side, takes him round again, gives him a wallop, da 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 da, da ducks out the other side, takes him round again, da, da da stops dead in front of the fence person, nearly goes over the top. It isn't until we've gone round and round, put at this fence, finally, 
we'll jump over it, knock the everything flying, of course. That's the first thing that happens. Doesn't clear it. Sticks everywhere. Everything's down. But eventually, it'll go over that fence easy. It has to be taught. Paul says, I think, doesn't he? I have learnt to be content. We don't get an injection uh, that uh, gives us contentment, puts us out. That's it. I've learnt. I'm content now. We learn to be content, and the way we learn is by fiery trial. But as Ruth Fazell says, the fire burns for you, not against you. Because it burns off in the circumstance the dross of your unbelief. It burns off and you come to the place where you marvel at the faithfulness, the kindness, the goodness of God. I'm not saying you go looking for trials, you don't. But when they come, your attitude towards them are different. Is different. Um, because you think you have you have proved yourself faithful. I am not letting go. I'm not going my own way on this one. You really have to battle yourself sometimes. Because he is the faithful God. He is faithful. So we pitch our tent a good distance from the, from the camp. Don't get yourself amongst people who are full of unbelief if you're going through a trial. Good bit of advice, that. They will be negative. They will pull you down. They will show you the fleshly way to do it. They will rationalize and they will talk you out of what God has told you to do. And they'll be there right alongside you. God will make sure they are because you need that to say, no, I'm going this way. Uh, the lady you phoned yesterday, she's right in the midst of it. By the time we finish it, I said, you know, it's like Nehemiah, dear. It was Sam Ballot and Tobiah that were against that. Let the work cease, let the work cease. Um, God is working everything together for good. And someone like myself, I'm not standing with a foot in both camps. I'm actually standing, as um, my friend over there gave me a prophetic word, that I was standing in the promised land and I'm calling other people over. I'm not going back into Egypt to get you. I'm calling you to where I'm standing. You see, I'm not going to go back in the mud. <laughs> and she also said there'd be a fight because Pharaoh put up a fight. He didn't let the people go easily. But in that fight, it was meant to strengthen them. But what did they do? Grumblers and complainers, 10. Contentment, nil. You know, I mean, we've got to determine to grit our teeth and trust God in these situations, really. Um, because uh, what I was going to say was that even those who are against us right now, seemingly like leadership where we're trying to come out of a situation they're putting up all sorts of obstacles and things like that be gracious thank you for your gracious concern but this is what i feel the lord is saying if i'm wrong i'll be the first one to come back and tell you um because for for, for kathy i mean with the mount mariah trust this man is uh, the president of the trust i said sweetheart the time for names on the top of paper has gone. It really has. It does not matter what man's opinion is. Uh, it doesn't matter. There's only one opinion that matters, and that's his. Everything for an audience of one. It's such a place to come to because what happens is your heart is full with grace for those who are against you. You're not got your fists up fighting them because if you fight them flesh with flesh you'll get a bloodied nose 
They don't understand the spirit, so it's not, it, you you got to speak from the spirit, but not the, not from the flesh. Because if you res, if you respond in the flesh, you'll get your nose bashed. You'll get a bunch of five. So those people are there to strengthen us in our resolve to follow what God is telling us to do. It isn't easy. Um, believe me, I th- I, th- well, I forget. I mean. Somebody said to me years ago, she prophesied over me that, you know, leaders are going to give you a rough time, really. Um, you're not even going to have to go near them for them to. And, and that is the case at the moment. I don't even go anywhere near a leader. But I know that I've got this sort of unseen battle going on. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. That's to cause me to grow in grace towards them. It's not to cause me to get my knife out and stab them in the back. Because we're all in different places, walking a different walk, and all we've got to be um, accountable to is the Lord at the end of the day for what he's told us to do, and then we go and get our palace, or our mud up, as the case may be. Anyway, so if he would expand us to receive the eternal, he must rescue us from the limitations of the temporal. This is not to say that we neglect our families or that we become irresponsible as we seek God. God has given everyone enough time to seek him. It's there. Having done what we, what love would have us do for our families, we simply say no to every other voice but God's. Look at this. We must redeem the time. That is, that is the word for this year. We must redeem the time. Cancel hobbies, forsake television, put away the newspaper and magazines. Those who would find God find time. He goes on to say, sadly many Christians have no higher goal, no greater aspiration than to become normal. Their desires are limited to measuring up to others. Without a true vision of God, we most certainly will perish spiritually. So the Holy Spirit has to redefine both our definition of reality and our priorities in life. And to be like Jesus must become our singular goal, because that's God's goal. His goal is to conform us to the image of Jesus. So, cool. I smell something lovely. I know what it is. I won't tell you. So 1 Samuel 7, 2. And the ark remains in Kiriath-Jiriam a long time. And it was there 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So after 20 years, David brings the ark back to Jerusalem into the midst of God's people. And then 2 Samuel 6, 12 to 23... Oh. Really? 
that, that yeah that sounds more like it actually but it took time before they realized what they'd lost because they were busy rising up to play and yeah. interesting it how how it uh, um because david's not born at this point where we are in samuel i don't think not very good at things like that so after 20 years 2 Samuel 6 interesting we could have a look at that and see what it is I'll ask David he's good at those things 2 Samuel 6 yes well we're sort of in ignoring the bit <laughs> uh, no we better not ignore it first thing David does is does it wrong doesn't he transport the ark we have to do it God's way or no way uh, 2 Samuel 6 again David gathered all the choice men of Israel 30,000 and he arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubims so they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. When they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark, then David and all the house of Israel played music. Wonderful, it's fine so far. And then, verse 6, Uzzah puts his hand out to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. If you actually flip back to 1 Samuel 6, I think it is, you see that some of these men looked in to the ark of God, these little things, and, they, and there was instant. 2 Samuel 6.19 He struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord? And to whom shall it go up from us? And that was at that point that it went to Kiriath-Jerim because they got the wind up over it. But again, uh, presumption disrespect they had a look inside this box looked like a box to them have a look inside it where they would have found the pot of manna the tablets of stone and Aaron's rod that budded and fruited but again we find here in in 2 Samuel 6 that uh, it's not done the right way if God tells us to do something a certain way we need to do it the way he said. I often hear people say, well, God has told me to do so and so, 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 so I'm going to do this, this and this, and I'm thinking that is not what he told you to do. What's usually happened is there's a rationalisation come in. Because if I do it like this, that's likely to happen. So I better not do that because I don't want that to happen. So I'll do it like this. It's called partial obedience. This in, and it, it won't do. I forget where it is as the the prophet it's in Kings John raised it on Monday night didn't he where the um, the king hangs on to the horns of the altar and and, and uh, gets smitten with leprosy 
um, he brings the word of the Lord, this prophet, no problem at all, straight down the line. But God has said, don't go back the way you came and don't speak to anyone on the way. Simple instruction. He's delivered, delivered the word, he turns around to come back and he meets an old prophet along the way. Can't stop, mustn't speak to anyone. Gonna go. Prophet says, oh, I've got the word of the Lord. He said, come in with me and have a meal. They're halfway through the meal when the old prophet says, you're, gonna, you're for it because God's going to kill you because you didn't do what he told you to do. Um, <laughs> it can have serious consequences. I would urge you if God is telling you to do something, it's funny because I'm starting to prepare the, the, the uh, summer school now, uh, and it's about doing exactly what God has told you to do not trying to twist it to make it easier for yourself or for the person who's going to hear it. Bring it with grace, but bring the word that he has given you because it will lose its essence and power and you'll have to go around it again because it's all about, not only about him trusting, you trusting him, but him trusting you. We have to prove out in the obediences of life how he can trust us because he wants to trust us as I've said so often you're not going to give a Lamborghini to a kid who hasn't mastered a three-wheeler you're just not going to do it it's like giving a machine gun to a you know you have to prove out in these little tests that you get about doing it exactly the way that God tells you to do it so here we have this prophet somewhere in Kings Joyce might look it up for me if she's kind uh, and of course he gets eaten by a lion, I think, or a bear, on the way back. All because all God said to him was, go deliver the word, turn around, come back, don't speak to anybody on the way, don't stop, just come back. A short career, he mentioned in dispatches. And in 2 Samuel 6, here we have, David makes a mistake, first go off. Uh, he was afraid because he, he knew he'd done it wrong, but he left it there for about six months, I think, didn't he? Three months. In the house of Obed-Edom, and he got blessed because the, the ark was there. Imagine, I think it's, it, is it Graham or someone? says, imagine Obed-Edom's wife going around with a feather flick, you know, being a bit careful how she dusts the ark off in the morning, yeah, you know, doing it very reverently, making sure there's no dust on the cherubim there. Well, I'll make you laugh. That's a serious thing though. So David coming back now to Samuel 6, doing it the right way, carried on the shoulders of the Levites because suddenly he found out there was a right and a wrong way of doing this. Um, this is it, you see. You find out the right way and you do it the right way. You don't muck about doing it the wrong way. I often think to myself, if people would listen to what I'm saying, it's because I've learnt it the hard way, so don't go the way I went. Take the critical path, shortest path, what's it, between two points, there to there. And uh, don't make the mistakes I made. God's very gracious, but he won't let you go on in that mistake. He'll take you back, correct you. He's so lovely, he's such a wonderful teacher. You can be absolutely certain that the teaching that you get from, from the Lord is uh, via his Holy Spirit is absolutely first class. He will not let you move on to grade two till you've accomplished grade one. It's wonderful. You might be anxious to be grade five, 
But actually you couldn't handle it if you put you in grade 5 because you'd find the things that are hitting you on grade 5 you just wouldn't know how to deal with. So little by little, we possess the land. That's what the summer school is going to be about, possessing the land. Yeah. 1 Kings 13. It's just that the, it, all scripture is God breathed, 1 Kings 13, and it's useful for correction, rebuke, it's there so that we wouldn't do the same thing. Yeah, there we go. Set it up. Warning of the prophet. Sin of the prophet. Judgment on the prophet. And, uh, where are we? Verse 14. This is the older prophet. Goes out after the man of God, found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? He said, I am. And he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. He said, I cannot return with you nor go in with you. Neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For I have been told by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by going the way you came. Here comes the persuasion. It's a test. I too am a prophet as you are. Oh. And an angel spoke to me. Here we are, you see. By the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. John said on Monday night, Oh, he didn't test the spirit. I said, No, John, that's not the issue. Obedience is the issue. <laughs> Obedience. So what's he do? Oh. I says, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, sounds like a good thing to do, I'll go there. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Now it happened, verse 20, as they sat at the table, that the word of the Lord came to the prophet and brought him back. And he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, this time he's really got the word of the Lord. Because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but came back, ate bread and drank water in the place which the Lord said to you, eat no bread and drink no water, your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. So it was after he'd eaten bread and he'd drunk that he saddled the donkey for him and the prophet whom he had brought back. When he was gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him. His corpse was thrown on the road and the donkey stood by it. The lion also stood by the corpse. And there men passed by and saw the corpse thrown on the road and the lion standing by the corpse. And they went in and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. So he went and got, got the body of the man. Tests are necessary. Look out for them. Indeed he did, it was a test. Who will be a lying spirit in the mouth of my prophets? It's in one of the it's in one of the uh Joyce, where is it that they they're all before the Lord and the Lord says to him, Who will be a lying spirit? And go in the mouth of my prophets. He's standing there, they're all standing there, he's saying, Okay, volunteers boys, who's gonna be a lying lying spirit in the mouth of my prophets here, eh? Who's in control here? There's no contest. But God will allow that 
to try to sidetrack you. What was it testing? It wasn't testing the old prophet. It was testing the one that had gone with the words of the Lord. Triumphed. He'd done it exactly the way God had told him. But he didn't carry it out. Saul, exactly the same. Partial obedience costs all the kingdom. God couldn't trust him. We just don't know with our tests how significant they're going to be. So we've got to set our faces as flint. I was saying to the Lord this morning, I suspect that the word that I'm giving is going to come on harder and harder and stronger and stronger. Um, because the very word itself will, will sift. Because people will go away and they'll think, I don't think I want that. That's okay. When we get to the rules of warfare, you'll see what's going on. Uh, but this is the way it really, really is. This is the way it really, really is. If you're going to go on with God, if you're going to set your heart to have the presence, the abiding presence of God in your life, it'll just cost you everything. But it's everything temporal that means nothing. And in doing that, everything temporal that means nothing is added to you because it says, seek first the kingdom only. That means seek only the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you. Joyce and I are walking examples of that because to the extent that we know how, we seek first and only the kingdom, the rulership of God in our lives. That's the internal inner territory. To the extent that we are dealt with by the Lord, and we still go on being dealt with, we choose the kingdom purposes over and above everything else. What happens to that? Everything that we need to fulfill his kingdom purposes comes trotting in through the door. I mean, I can't tell you what a blessing that laptop has been to me. Tim, bless him. You don't need a laptop. I do. No, no, no. You don't need one. I'm thinking, I do, I do. I know I do. I know I would be sitting up there bashing out all the stuff I know I've got to do. <laughs> I got a laptop out of the blue. We prayed about it and God said, give it to Beryl. <sighs> Thank you, Lord. And then I've got one of these little sticks. Joyce has got something. Yes. 1 Kings 22, 22. This... Is what you're hearing here is fire. Because what is happening is that the fire that God has placed in my bones that Joyce prayed about last night, that I'm calling down and asking for send the fire. This is the fire. It means that you will actually come into the purposes of God in your generation. It means that you will live a life less ordinary and therefore you will walk in a different way. You'll get to walk on air, you'll get to walk on water, but you won't care about that sort of thing that there there is there is a story that uh, i forget who told it about this man in a massive auditorium massive load of people and the one he wanted to speak to was right at the back there so he walked on air and spoke to the person at the back and turned around and came back because god reversed his natural laws in order for the man to do this that's all he did when Jesus walked on the water. Jesus made the laws in the first place. He just reversed the laws and said, I'm going to walk on that substance. Temporal, eternal, we get to choose in every situation what it is we're going to go for. Are we going to go for treasure in heaven or are we going to go for the bird in there and being worth two in the bush? 
It's a mindset. It's, it's what this man was saying. He's got to break us out, get us outside the camp, outside the safety of the womb of the little church that we've been in, where we've had pap, I think it's Derek Prince says, sermonettes make Christianettes make churchettes. And I thought, that's about the size of it, you know. You stay in little frilly white cardigans with pink buttons all your life because you will never grow up. And in growing up into the things of God, hard choice time. But he never, ever, 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 ever lets you down. You, you get to know that he never lets you down. And that's how you get to know. By making the hard choices, by choosing him above everything else, above all the persuasions, all the pressures of the world, all the, oh, you don't have to be so... You, you really, you know, you're too... Oh, they told me that at work years ago, however long it is I left work. You're just, you know, you don't have to be so single-minded about it. You know, just have that as part of your life. It doesn't have to be all of it. And I thought, I don't like that. Spit it out. That was the world's view. Just go there on Sunday. Don't get so worked up about it. I would dare to say it's why the country is in such a state. It's because the church has got, don't get so worked up about it. No, don't get so passionate. Because what we're talking about here is David's passion. And one of the things about me that can embarrass other Christians is my passion. So every now and again, God will pour some kerosene over my passion and it flames up like a good one. Uh, I, I just prayed this morning, Lord, just just. Fill me with that burning fire of passion for you. There's no other way to live. Burning bush stuff. Burning but not consumed. Look around at the people that you've seen that stick out like landmarks and they will talk about the burning passion of God within them. Smith Wigglesworth, John Wesley, Whitfield. They all had this experience of the living flame. John of the Cross, living flame within going right back there is a flame that God desires to light within his church for those who are willing Jeremiah fire in my bones he says what you've got is a set of scales and on it everything that the world offers you and in this is just a little bit of gold dust so you've got to weigh the gold dust up there what the world's offering is down there because it's heavier it's weighty you can feel it You've got to weigh your choices against the gold dust. Wood, hay and stubble. Gold, silver, precious stones. Your choices every day will be kingdom or this world. Kingdom or this world. Father, help me to make eternal choices. Choices that will actually affect eternity. Affect the position I hold in eternity. I'm not looking for rewards but I know I will get one Paul says henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness if you ever looked at the crowns crown of life crown of righteousness crown of glory there's crowns there but they don't come automatic there has to be this decision in here and it's all to do with the will choice everything you do will be your will is absolutely pivotal. When we look at body, soul, and spirit, you'll see how pivotal it is. I will, I won't. 
we have that we have that inbuilt choice you're not going to lose your salvation but there comes the time if God has selected you out to do something and you know in your heart that he has um, that you and you're you're being proved out through the tests and the trials of life and he's being so patient with you and he's saying sweetheart we're running out of time sweetheart I need you to make this decision you know he's not angry but I've got someone over here who will do it because he knows all the decisions we're going to make I bear the mantle of someone who didn't pick up the mantle and I know that because he said to me the mantle that was on them has fallen on you so I speak from experience of knowing who it was that should be actually wearing this mantle what I would have been doing I've no idea because the Lord knows all things I didn't I didn't actively choose the mantle he he declared it over me the Lord declared it over me that because of that and it was a it was a choice that this person faced and his words were giving it away that it was a he sorry about that the cost is too great in my hearing we were just having a conversation He's not lost his salvation. He's still being used mightily of God. But it's like there are two stairways. One goes up like that. And one goes uh, one goes along like that. This very person used to say, Lord, I don't want to get there and find two stairways. And I'm going up this one and thinking, I don't remember doing all this. I don't, I don't remember that. I, wasn't, I don't remember that. And the Lord said, no, you, you didn't. You walked up that one. Choices are absolutely imperative. When he's giving you something to do, it's got to be the nodding dog. Whether you can see how it's going to work out or not, yes, Lord, don't know how you're going to do this, but the answer is yes. I nearly got overwhelmed on Monday night because I sense that God is going to start sending a lot of people here. And I said, Lord, I don't. I just feel I've got to get a good go. I'm overwhelmed. I'm going to be overwhelmed. And he, all he said was divide the group. Practical assistance. If it gets too big, divide the group. I thought, oh, well, it's probably me anyway, you know, think, thinking beyond there, thinking about this and wondering how I'm going to feed all these lambs. Um, Everything in this book, you see, is written for our admonition, for our learning, so that we will say, I ain't going there. You know, Moses, I mean, I've thought a lot about Moses. His anger was his problem. He never got to rule his own spirit. And so at the end of the day, he dropped the tablets, broke them, had to go back and get some more. You could say he was righteously angry. He was just, he was just so furious with what they did as soon as he turned his back. Uh, but at the end of the day, it was that as well that kept him out of the promised land. Because he lost it with the Israelites under severe pressure. I wouldn't like millions of them coming up and doing what they did. But you see, the further on you go, the higher and harder the test gets. You get sore pressed. But you're expected to rule your own spirit. I mean, that's just something else again. Anyway, I've gone off a bit there. Never mind. Anyway, so... Th what was that last scripture that Joyce gave us? 
One Kings. Oh yes, thank you so much. Yes, One Kings twenty two twenty three. There we are now. Oh, I love it. I oh, just see. Look at this. Who's in control? I'll go from um, um. It's the promise of victory by false prophets. The ear tests words as the mouth tastes meat. We've got to not be drawn aside by what other people say. It's Jehoshaphat, isn't it? Um, and Jehoshaphat said, is there not, verse 7, still a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there's still one man, Micaiah, son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord. I hate him. Because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. You see, if you say what God tells you to say, you're not in a popularity contest. And Jehoshaphat said, let not this king say such things. Oh, forbid it. <laughs> then the king of Israel called an officer and said, bring Micaiah, the son of Imla, quickly. The king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, having put on their robes, sat each on his throne at a threshing floor at the entrance to the gate of Samaria, where they made all their decisions. And all the prophets prophesied before them. Now look at that. Here they all come. And said they were doing the uh, horns of iron and all sorts. Oh, go and prosper, prosper. Then the messenger had gone, verse 13, to call Micaiah, spoke to him, saying, Now listen, the words of the prophets with one accord encouraged the king. Please let your word be like the one of them. Speak encouragement. And Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, whatever the Lord says to me, that... I will speak. If you are a prophet in training or prophetic, that which the Lord gives, speak. Then he came to the king, and the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall we refrain? And he said, Go and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. And the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? He wasn't giving the word of the Lord. Then he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? And then, of course, he says, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? So one spoke in this manner and another spoke in that. There's a whole conversation going on here. Having a little conference. Then a spirit came forward and said before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said to him, in what way? So he said, I'll go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you shall persuade him and prevail. Go out and do so. Now therefore, look, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours, and the Lord has declared disaster against you. Who's in control? I think it's absolutely, I mean, to me, that is absolutely brilliant. Our God reigns, eh, what? Don't be led astray by siren voices. You know, I used to say to uh, Sarah there, I would say, lash yourself to the mast, dear. 
because uh, was it Hercules or someone I don't remember the Greek uh, things where they used to he, he'd go through this strait and there were the sirens on the rocks trying to get him persuaded to go first one way and then the other and it would have meant death for him so he lashed himself to, to the mast because he knew that he would not be able to resist the siren voices so before he went through this strait he got himself tied to the mast so he couldn't move good place to be tie yourself to the cross so you can't move girls <sighs> so back to 2 Samuel 6 12 to 23 David finally gets this ark on the right way and and you know he dances before the Lord and he's despised by his wife Michael she looks out and she thinks will the king make a laughing stock of himself because his ephod was jumping up and down and apparently got no underpants on or something. But he's no longer concerned about his position in front of the people um, because he doesn't care what they think. His passion has overruled what people would say because his passion for Jesus has got become so great and because of David's attitude of heart God is pleased with David in spite of all the mistakes he made he's described as a man after God's own heart he was a man of like passions he was a passionate man he, he as you can see he went astray with Bathsheba he did his share he murdered he did sexual sin his, his son Solomon reaped the benefits of that down the generational line if anybody ever wants to understand about generational sin have a look at David and Solomon because Solomon had about 600 wives and the lust that was born in David came out in Solomon so he couldn't satisfy himself even with 600 of them you know <laughs> generational sin uh, anyway I think we should stop there don't you and it's not at the end of the day, as we know, David who builds the temple because though he's got it in his heart to build a house, and he says he won't let sleep come to his eyelids until he's done this thing. God actually says, you're not the man. So then what he does is to provide everything he can to enable his son to do it. He doesn't go into a tantrum. He don't go into one at all. He just says, okay, I'll start storing up the stuff. I'll have all the provision for him to build it pass the baton on to the next generation well thank you for listening I think that uh, we'll stop there you're all looking as if you might be in a cafe